0: We can all relate to being in storms, can't we? We're going to read right now what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And please stand with me as we read God's Word, as we engage in the public reading of God's Word, which is a biblical practice, biblical practice to publicly read the Word of God and to let it speak without comment, and let it be as it is. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Lord God, we thank you that we could read your word. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've spoken and you continue to speak to us from your word, by your spirit, for your glory. And Lord, even in this time as we contemplate these words, we pray, Lord, that you would do the work you want to do in each one of us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is faithful in the storm. In these verses we just read, in the context of Christ's absolute power and authority over everything, we come to this familiar account of the disciples getting in the boat with Jesus. Matthew and Mark and Luke all record this episode. Mark goes into the most detail. Luke the second most, and Matthew, not surprisingly, is the most concise. In fact, I want to read, I want you to read the the other accounts. First in Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, follow along with me. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? and they obey him. Then you look with me over at Mark chapter 4 and you get even more detail. Verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd they took with him, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? In reading Luke and Mark, we get these details that Matthew doesn't give us in his brevity and in his making the point that Jesus has absolute authority and power over everything. He doesn't give us all the nuances of the story in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23 it says that when they got in the boat his disciples followed him so far so good they followed him they were willing to go with him They were willing to be with him he was their teacher he was their Lord now it was a pretty big boat they're in a boat and it was a big boat In fact, there was an excavation in 1986 of a Galilean fishing boat that was almost 28 feet long, almost 8 feet wide, and almost 5 feet high. It could hold up to 15 men. Funny, but when I read this story, I always think of an 8-foot dinghy. Jesus was in the boat, and he was with his disciples, and they were going over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, all sometimes called a lake. Matthew is recording what he began to say in verse 18 of chapter 8. That Jesus saw the crowd around him and he gave orders to go over to the other side. Last week we saw these two men come up to him. You go in the other gospels and you see there were actually three. There was another that spoke to him. But this this situation arises before they get in the boat. Then they get in the boat. And in verse 24, we read that there was a big storm that arose. It, it, the word behold means that all of a sudden it happened. It was a storm. And it arose on the sea, and it was a big one. And they were in danger. In fact, the, uh, the word used here for a great storm is uh, the Greek word seismos. Uh, it's where we get our, our word seismic where we get our word seismograph, where we measure an earthquake. It was shaking, it was, it was quaking almost like an earthquake of what was happening to the boat as a result of the waves and the wind. This was not an uncommon occurrence in those days in that place. Not even today. The thing is, is that um, it, it was surrounded by mountains and all of a sudden the wind could come down and... Shocked people with how big the waves were and how dangerous they were, and it would come without warning. All of a sudden, a storm arose, and it was a violent storm. It was a fierce gale of wind. It shocked the boat so much it felt like an earthquake, and so violent that the boat was being swamped. It was being filled with water, flooding. The waves could have been as high as seven feet. The surf was up. The boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, in the stern, on a cushion. Jesus was sleeping. He he had just said he had no place to lay his head, meaning he had no permanent home, and now we find him laying his head on a sack of ballast, most likely, a makeshift cushion, asleep in a boat definitely not a permanent residence but he was asleep in the midst of a storm a storm that would wake anybody up some of you could sleep through, I slept through earthquakes verse 25 the, tells us the, the disciples went and woke him up why'd they wake him up? because they were afraid they got scared they panicked They were very afraid. These were veteran seamen. They were used to being on the Sea of Galilee fishing. They felt terror as the boat was being thrashed by the waves. So they woke Jesus up and asked Him for help. Save us! We're drowning. Save us! We're perishing. We're being destroyed. Literally, it means we're being being destroyed. And I don't think this was like when our kids tell us they're starving. These disciples were in real danger and they needed Jesus. It makes me wonder though how long these veteran seamen bailed water and tried to row before they asked Jesus for help. They had to wake him up. He was unaffected by this storm. Huge contrast you see between Jesus picture of complete trust in God. And the disciples, overwhelmed by this reality of life, this storm, they even questioned his care for them. Did you you catch that in Mark? Do you not care that we are perishing? Two observations on this one. First, they thought they were going to die. And second, they knew Jesus could help. They thought they were going to die, but they knew Jesus could help. I don't think they got the full extent of what he would do in response. Jesus did two things when he woke up. First, he spoke to the disciples, and then he spoke to the wind and sea. The players in this drama were rebuked by Jesus. Verse 26. He said to them, to the disciples, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Why? Why? Are you a little faith? He called them little faiths. He says, why are you timid? Why are you cowardly? He questioned their faith. He didn't question the fact that they asked for help. He didn't tell them that was wrong. He wants us to go to him for help. He doesn't want us to panic as if he couldn't help. But he called them little faiths. Oh, you of little faith means why are you timid? Why are you cowardly? You little faiths. See, they had faith, but it was weak. It was deficient. It was small. God can do a lot with small faith, but he was telling it like it is. In fact, he asked the question and answers it himself. Why are you afraid? Oh, because you're a little faith. See, faith is being... um, Believing without proof. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing without proof. Believing without seeing. And he rebuked them for not resting in his power and authority. Then what he did? He showed them how powerful he really is. He showed them just how much authority he has. He got up. It says, see, when he said, "Oh, you have little faith," he was still on the cushion, still relaxing, just getting up out of the sleep. I, I love this contrast. Here's Jesus, fully God, fully man. asleep, tired, about to with a word shut down the wind and waves. So he gets up And he rebukes the wind and the sea And there was a great calm Great calm He commanded Literally he commanded The wind and the sea Mark has him saying Peace be still Literally that means hush Be still be quiet Don't make a sound You know when you say to one of your kids Be quiet Don't say a word Stop Jesus is saying, "Just like you tell a dog to sit, (laughs) sit, be quiet." Literally, he's saying, "Be quiet, be muzzled to the to the to the the wind and the waves." Now, those who were rebuked by Jesus responded to him; they responded favorably. Look at verse twenty-seven. And the men marvelled, saying. What sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? So the men marveled, and they wondered. They marveled through the immensity of his power. They wondered because they were blown away by the fact that God was in the boat with them. Now, the wind and the sea also responded to Jesus. Verse 26 tells us there was a great calm. Verse 27, the disciples say, The wind and sea obey him the wind stopped blowing the sea stopped raging it quieted down it obeyed jesus now there are several things i want you to see that this episode shows us three things that i'll point out one is that we are not sufficient this is this is easy to see here as much as we think as we'd like to think we are, we are not. When they say, help us, Lord, we're perishing, they realized they weren't sufficient for the, for the challenge. They weren't up to it. They couldn't handle it. It was beyond them. So it was an appropriate request. Help us, Lord, we're perishing. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. We're weak. We're inadequate. We can't do it. We have insufficient funds. See, it's good when we realize and acknowledge that. It was good that the disciples got to that point. There's an inherent danger in self-reliance. Self-reliance lulls us into thinking quite deceptively that we're in control. That we're the masters of our own destiny. That we make it happen. That we hold the keys. See, when we're sufficient, we just tack Jesus on as an extra in our life the self-sufficient use Jesus as a bit player playing bit parts he has cameo appearances but they run the show he's just someone to them that will help you to get through the day a, a, a gentle friend who would never tell you that you don't uh, that you're going the wrong way or that you shouldn't do something well just you will never tell you what you don't want to hear he never tell you what to do. He might give you a couple suggestions. Because the self-sufficient don't need a Lord. They're their own. And so, to the self-sufficient, Jesus may give you some suggestions, but you don't have to follow him if you don't want. He sets it up for you. Um, He's your buddy. He's your friend. He's your pal. Anything goes. You can pick off the buffet table that he sets up. Anything you want when you're self-sufficient. And you never need to be lot, feel obligated to do anything that he says because you only do what's comfortable for you. Self-sufficiency. See, that's the savior of the ones who want to make God in their own image. It's very common today. The self-sufficient call Jesus teacher, but they don't want to learn from him. They want to teach him how to be a savior. Others call him Lord. They don't want to bow to him no intention of obeying the bible paints a different picture what will the pot say to the maker the giver of every good and perfect gift jesus said apart from me you can't do nothing which means you can't do anything apart from jesus 2 Corinthians 3.5 says that we are not adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See, we need Jesus like we need air. And if we get that part wrong, we will not understand the Christian life as God intends us to. We will become disillusioned when things don't go our way. We run the risk of basing our relationship with God on Him doing what we want Him to do rather than Him doing and enabling what we could never do alone? See, God is a God of love. A lot of people will say, well, God's a God of love. I could never see Him asking that or doing that or even allowing that. God is a God of love, and as such, it doesn't mean that He will never do or allow something that we disagree with or do not understand. See, when I'm not dwelling in the presence of Christ, and by the way, the disciples... Uh, in the midst of that storm, they, they were in the presence of Christ but not resting in the presence of Christ. He was resting. They were striving. They were bailing. They were rowing. They were trying to save themselves. When I'm not dwelling in the presence of Christ, when I'm not walking in the Spirit, I am going to be more apt to question or blame God when i am not walking closely with him it's going to be easy to find fault in him and other people it's going to be easy to throw relational bottle rockets that set people off instead of building them up instead of thinking of others as more important than me see the essence of self-sufficiency is when i am so fixated on other things that i don't care to have my gaze fixed upon christ that i don't care to have my my eyes turned on christ there's the danger of self-sufficiency and we learn here that we are not self-sufficient the disciples learned that well it took a an instant for the lesson to take hold when they came to jesus and said save us lord we are perishing they got there they needed to it was good for them to get there and it points us to a second thing that Jesus calming the storm not only points to our insufficiency but shows that Jesus is all sufficient. And all sufficient means just that. Doesn't mean part way, doesn't mean partially, it means completely sufficient. If he has all power and authority, he's all sufficient. Able to calm the wind and the sea, able to handle what, what's going on to you and me. See, the disciples that day saw a loving, good God who was able to do immeasurably, immeasurably beyond what we could even ask or think. See, sometimes we're, we're tempted, like they were, to ask, Lord, don't you care that this is going on in my life? Don't you care? Lord, why? Don't you see what this, it's doing to me? Or don't you care that I've lost my job? I've lost my spouse? That I've lost my friends? That I'm losing my health? We're tempted to ask the same questions. I know how you feel. I've felt that way many times myself. Lots of times. But I've found that feelings can play tricks on you and that you should not let them drive the bus facts should let truth drive all sufficient means just that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ he is the truth he is fully able jesus let's let's consider let's consider jesus for a moment Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. The eternal Word made flesh. Supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. Perfect in nature, perfect in teaching, perfect in obedience. He is fully God and fully man. He was always with God and He is God. Through Him all things came into being and by Him all things were created. He was before all things and in him all things hold together by the power of his word. He is the only savior for the sins of the world, who shed his blood and died in our place on Calvary's cross. He revealed in that in that episode God's love and he satisfied God's wrath. He upheld God's justice At the cross, he reconciled sinners to himself, removing our guilt. Those who come to faith in Christ are forgiven. He redeems us from sin. He he rose bodily from the grave. He was victorious over death and all powers of evil. All powers of darkness. He ascended into heaven... Where right at this very moment, at the right hand of the Father, He is interceding for us. He is praying for us. Our all-sufficient Savior. Our all-sufficient Lord. Right now, in heaven, He is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God. He is head over his people and over his church he rules as Lord over all he's the head of the church and should be adored loved served and obeyed by all as the all sufficient one now I know all that and I still have problems believing that he can handle all of my problems and so do you But wait, there's more. There's more. Salvation is a free gift of God provided by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And if anyone turns from sin in repentance to Christ and his substitutionary death, they receive the gift of eternal life and they are declared righteous by God as a free gift they are fully accepted by God what kept them from God no longer does what was sending them to hell no longer does through faith in what Jesus Christ did you can be reconciled to God and become his child A transformation of life happens. You are forgiven the debt of your sin. You're freed from the law of sin and death. You're, you're, You're put into the freedom of the Spirit of God, of the children of God. There's more. The Holy Spirit works in believers, producing His fruit in their lives. And he will renew your mind so that you will want to serve him and want to please him and want to grow in him. That's the one that we can't trust when things happen in life. That's the one we have trouble believing when times get tough. Why why is that? Because we're self-sufficient But we're not Christ is all-sufficient Christ is all-sufficient As you live in Christ In Christ I sign every one of my emails and letters With the words in Christ And they can be so forgotten So passed by But I want you to know If I write you an email Or I write you a letter Or you read something I wrote And at the end it says in Christ There's a reason See, there was a day that I was not in Christ. There was a day that I was excluded from the life of God. There was a day that I was without God in the world. Without hope. And then God drew me to himself. And then God saved my soul. And then I was in Christ forever. So when you see that, in Christ, that means that my life is wrapped up in the all sufficient Christ. That means that my forever is assured by the all sufficient Christ. That means that Christ is my life. Christ is the gospel. Christ is my everything. See, the Holy Spirit comes into your life when you know Jesus and, 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 and you get to know God's Word and you get to pray and you get to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you get to worship God. You get to do all these things you couldn't do before and you get to confess your sins to God and you want to. You didn't want to before, you want to cover them up. But now you want to expose those and walk in the light. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to serve God and to build up believers and to reach the lost. I know it sounds weak, uh, but I, I keep asking the question to myself then why don't I trust Him in everything? It might be a weak answer, but I say, well, it's because I leak. And I keep on needing to be filled. See, I was baptized by the Holy Spirit when I came to faith in Christ. But I need to be continually filled with the Spirit as I live in Christ. Because I'm sinful and I leak nothing wrong with God problems with me see we we rely upon God for everything even if we don't acknowledge it don't believe me try breathing without him apart from him we can do nothing but with him we can do all things Philippians 4 13 we're always dependent upon him for everything to be in Christ is to know him as your total sufficiency. As your life that your life is completely reoriented, completely saturated, completely kept and held and in the context of Jesus, Jesus is the central focus of your life. Jesus is your everything. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus, people will call you a Jesus freak. People will say you're out of balance. People will say there's got to be something else besides Jesus. Jesus teaches us moment by moment, day by day, what it really means to know Him, what it really means to love Him, what it really means to be in Him, because He is in us. And what we do with Jesus is we, we, we need Him because we seek real-life answers to real-life problems and questions from the one who is real life. We are not sufficient Jesus totally is. I want to point out one more thing that this this story shows us. It does show us something else, and it's the thing that is probably the hardest thing to see in this passage. But this story shows us that God is worthy of our worship, that God is worthy of our worship. One of the most important lessons in Jesus calming the storm is that it gives us a perfect illustration of true worship, of what true worship is. Say, how so? Well, let me show you. Matthew says that they marveled, verse 27, marveled. Mark says that they became very afraid. This was after Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. It's not the fear of, hey, we're going to die. It's the, fear that it's the reverent fear of being in the presence of one whose power and authority is greater than anything you might face in life. It's reverent fear of God. So we tend to define worship in terms of what we do, in terms of music style, and in terms of certain activities that we call worship. But worship's to be all of life. Giving God his rightful place. Giving God the praise that is due him. Acknowledging him. And when Jesus' disciples got in the boat that day, and by the way, there were other boats around. Remember what the other gospel writers said. There were other boats with them. There was a, a little flotilla of boats. And it wasn't just that one boat that was in the storm. They were all in it gives us a perfect example when they, when they got in the boat that day little did they know that they would be worshipping they are going to be having a worship service they were all wet by the way drenched probably cold but see here's what their, their response to Jesus demonstrated they, they, they marveled. they were in great fear they demonstrated what worship is By the way, you don't need to write this down because it's right on the back of your your notes there in the questions section. But worship is the reverent fear of one whose power and authority exceeds anything we might face. It is the soul's response of honor and adoration to God. It is marveling at God whose strength and presence overcomes the violent forces of nature. It is the sincere acknowledgement of Him whose goodness and greatness. calls for humble trust and obedience is the pure response of a soul that recognizes that God is preeminent over all above all else see to realize that we are in the presence of him who has absolute power and authority draws worship from our souls in the face of absolute truth and holiness all we can do is bow at his feet and ask for his mercy the elements of nature are under his authority how much more are we in the presence of this one who is absolute authority and power all I want to do is worship him when I recognize his presence all I want to do is give my life to him all I want to do is want what he wants see what what true worship does is this And I base this on Bob Coughlin's definition of a faithful worship leader. But true worship does this it magnifies, and these are in your notes as well, it magnifies the greatness of God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, motivating the church to dwell in God's presence, proclaim the gospel, and live for God's glory. That's what true worship does worship in God's presence draws worship from our souls to God it led that day to amazement and adoration it led that day to them wondering questioning who is this man it led them to process the greatness of God and consider who it was they were really dealing with how awesome he is so they said who is this Who are we dealing with? None other than God himself. Jesus captured their hearts in this display of power and authority. This was no mere man. They clearly saw that that Jesus himself, not just his miracles, is extraordinary. God wants you to worship him. God wants you to worship him not only when he rescues you from storms, but God wants you to worship him in the midst of storms. I will praise you in the storm. I'll praise the God who gives and takes away. He is who he is always. See the episode on the sea was no accident. Jesus didn't have a a sleep thing. It was designed by Jesus as a huge teaching opportunity. What did he want them and us to learn? That if you are in the boat with Jesus, or better yet, if Jesus is in the boat with you, if you know him, and you are safe, you are secure. Nothing can touch you that hasn't first come through him. And what he wants from you is trust, obedience, and worship. Give you a little nautical term there. and tow the line with Jesus. Trust, obedience, and worship. Storms divert our attention. But Jesus focuses us. You don't have to strain and strive and bail out. Bail water in your storms. And then get as far as you can get and then ask Jesus to take over. Hey, Jesus, you can take it now. What you need to do is dwell in the presence of Jesus dwell in the presence of jesus that's what i need to do it's like when you need patience you say well what i'm going to do is i'm going to work on my patience that's the wrong tack when you need patience the way to get it is not to work on your patience you're not the savior you're not the lord you're not all sufficient the way to get it is to learn to dwell in the presence of him who gives patience who produces patience. Dwell in Him who is our peace. Peace will come. The Holy Spirit will produce patience. When you do that, when you dwell in Jesus, here's what you're going to learn. You're going to learn that troubles may overwhelm, but Jesus overcomes. Troubles may overwhelm, but Jesus overcomes. And in Christ we are safe and secure. The one who leads beside still waters also leads through the storms of life. He has shown himself faithful so many times before. So many times through the ages. God was faithful in Joseph's storm. We see it in Genesis. Favored by his father. Betrayed by his brothers. Accused by his boss's wife. Forgotten by a man he helped. Lied to by his brothers. Promoted to power. And you don't see him complaining to God. He accepted what God brought in his life graciously, and therefore he was able to forgive with grace. Job went through a storm. The storm Job went through was not of his own making. And Job learned that God is faithful no matter what. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return the Lord gives and the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord Jonah went through a storm one he brought on himself and God was faithful in that storm to lead him to repentance Jonah learned his lesson the hard way but still he learned it because God is loving and faithful and kind You will know him to be faithful in the storm when you trust him in the storms you face. What I love best about this story is it is all focused directly upon Jesus and his faithfulness. This is basic following Jesus at its pure best. This is stripped down following nothing but Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Save us, Jesus. We're perishing. And then, wow, look what He does. See, that speaks to me. That speaks to me. It's so easy to speak of anything and and, and everything but Jesus, even in Christian circles, isn't it? To be so wrapped up in so many debates and arguments and questions and suggestions and, and, and lose Jesus, lose focus of Jesus. Get so wrapped up in our thing that we don't see His thing going on. But you choose to focus your eyes on Jesus And he becomes the center of your universe, your your life. You're going to lose nothing but sin, self-centeredness, and self-sufficiency. Spiritual self-sufficiency. And in Christ, you know what you get. You get heaven. You get brothers and sisters in Christ. You get fellowship with God. and, And the exchange continues to not make sense. My filthy rags for his great riches. Wow. Praise God. We deserve hell, we deserve wrath, and Jesus took it on himself and gives us life. Philippians 2 says that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've got to put our focus upon Jesus. That's what the disciples learned that day. The one who saves is Jesus. The one who will come again is Jesus. And we are called to dwell in his presence. Dwell in his presence. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that we are not sufficient, but that you are all sufficient, and you are worthy of our worship. And Lord God, in in the midst of whatever we're facing, in the midst of our weakness, please don't let us try on our own. Lord, help us to focus on you, Jesus, our Deliverer, our Savior, our Lord, our Friend, who is seated far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. May you, Lord, who is faithful in the storm, be the center of our universe. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen.